All right. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome. Welcome. Man, it is good to be back. How are you doing? Good. Just spent a nice uh, 15 minutes talking about life insurance. So, you know, 30s are going great. Yeah. I hate it. It's making me nervous. My back hurt. My knees hurt. These fuckers better pay out. Uh, they better not give me the runaround. That's all I know. <laughs> we we just spent like 15 minutes talking about life insurance and Matt's just like silently watching us. Like what? See, it's it's really compelling evidence against ghosts that people that like life insurance agents or life insurance companies don't get haunted. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that that checks out. Yeah. If, if any asshole is going to get haunted, it'd be that guy, the guy who sold you. Yeah. It's going to be the life insurance. It does check out because I just realized they're not going to pay me out. They're going to have to pay out my wife. So I, I will haunt the motherfucker. That's right. But, you know, unless. <laughs> unless. Unless. Uh, so today we are not talking about life insurance. I mean, not on the recording too Damn much. It. I know you were excited. Matt was pumped. I'm pumped. I'm pumped about something that's not life insurance, though. And uh, that's because we're talking about the, the one one crop that probably in a hundred and I don't know, 80 episodes we've done. This is like the one that everyone, other than corn, I guess, that everyone's probably eaten. It's a native crop. It's had just a little bit of domestication done to it. And it, it still has like a ton of great ecosystem benefits while also somehow being a profitable crop. The man is pecan pilled. Peck pilled. Let's not use that. We just left the niche sphere and kind of joined the mainstream with pecan. So we got to do something better than that. Pea pilled. No, okay. I, I heard that one. Don't, I, I'm not Donald Trump. Oh. Did I break you, Matt? <laughs> that happened a long time ago. It's okay. just sadness. Sadness. Okay. Before we get into this episode, I do want to highlight a couple things to the point that I just kind of hinted at with the other trees and the nuts that we've been talking about. There had been very little research available in those areas, so we got to go like really deep because there wasn't a lot to go with. Pecans is a little bit different because it's an actual crop. There's actually like a ton of research about you know the health benefits and the history and all these different things. And because of that development to become a crop, as opposed to like just a thing on the landscape, this episode will follow a little bit of a different trajectory. And that's also because there's a really interesting story here that's worth unpacking about how and why the pecan became the most popular native nut from North America, at least across the globe. And I, I do think it gives us some really good insights into what it would take to change the narrative around other specific tree crops. Yeah, because everyone who's anyone is talking about tree crops and no cap kids. We have the best audience in the world. No cap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also sorry matt tomorrow is your birthday you're turning 23 so you are our baby although you are getting old i heard, i saw your ears perking up a little bit during that insurance conversation so you know yeah you never so had that knowledge i wish somebody told my dumb ass when i was 23 would you have listened i probably mm -hmm. wouldn't have listened yeah. no absolutely not yeah so pro tip when I turned 30, that was my gift to myself as life insurance, term life insurance. Elliot also is setting up his life insurance. That's the game plan. If society doesn't collapse, you got life insurance to pay out. Who needs I'm a be, fucking I'm retirement being forced. plan? I'm being forced. Forced by mm -hmm. love. Yeah. I told her, uh, I, 
if I die within two years of signing life insurance, it's going to look suspicious. So, so it's actually self-preservation. That's right. You bought yourself two years. Yeah, she got to wait it out. <laughs> you locked her down. Nice. Uh, okay, so peacans insurance premiums because you're renewing every two years. <laughs> Sorry, babe. I got to get new policy. Uh, that one didn't work out. Yeah. So you yeah. can't kill me again for two more years. One more fucked thing on life insurance. You can take out a policy on literally anybody. It's fucking weird. You can also cash in your policy early if you're terminal. Good to know. You can also sell your policy too. As when, we... when did this episode get sad? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> right when we started talking about pecans. Yeah. yeah. It's the pecan to life insurance pipeline. All the cool people are aware of it. Come on, Matt. Catch up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Focus. Okay. Sorry. I You start talking about math and I get excited. It's It's bad. Fucking nerd. We're talking about boring <laughs> shit, and then he gets excited. Hell yeah. Uh, so, pecans. The word pecan actually derives from an Algonquin word, pecan, which has a couple of different translations of what it means, but basically some kind of variant of nuts requiring a stone to crack or a nut too hard to crack by hand. And uh, like we said, it is the most well-known nut in North America. Obviously, it has the highest amount of production compared to other nuts. But what's interesting is that as much as we think of it as a crop, it really doesn't have a long history of being actually managed like a crop. Back in time, the time before Elliot likes me to go back to, the pecan basically ranged from like the Gulf Coast up to Illinois. And uh, really where it thrives is like right on the edges of like flood zones where there's much less canopy competition. And in these ranges, the pecan can reach like 150, 180 feet. I mean, the pecan always seemed like a southeastern food. Illinois seems a little strange. Yeah. And there's a bit of interesting history there, too. Yeah. I thought it was like a southern sort of crop, too, because there's pecans all over Georgia, especially like South Georgia. So it feels like it's native here. And the way people talk about pecans and their yeah, dang pies. I mean, peaches aren't native either, but it's the peach state. So yes, it's a state of lies and damn good food, I surmise. A state of mind. Got bars. Got bars. It's the deep state, Elliot. Finally breaking out of the matrix. (laughs) Again, with the red pilled sentiment, welcoming me to the real world. Where you have real life insurance. Fuck. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, the reason I brought that up, said there was like a, an interesting story to that. Indigenous people, like basically all the crops we've talked about to this point, or all the, the trees we've talked about, they expanded that range. And they planted the pecan as far north as New York and further east, as well as further west. So the takeaway shouldn't be that just Indigenous people were doing interesting stuff with the pecan. But also that these trees are really hardy, much hardier than, again, what people typically think, and uh, are pretty aggressive growers. One noted plant breeder, Luther Burbank, had described the pecan as being so aggressive that it, in quote, had seedlings an inch high with roots from four to six feet in length. So it's a grower and a shower. You heard it here first, folks. Maybe that's, maybe that's the uh, bumper sticker. Growers, not showers. Pecan style. <laughs> Your pea can grow, not show. Mm. You need to stop. (laughs) Uh, So along with its deep roots, the pecan has a habit of creating these really dense groves of pecans. 
And uh, this clustering allows for like easier pollination and really helps create a healthy, diverse set of genetics. So let me get this straight. Pecans will grow in thick clusters around rivers and in wetter areas, which usually also have groundnuts in the same area, that riparian zone, uh, which we've talked about in the past extensively on this podcast. So there were like these super dense areas right around rivers naturally. I mean, there dare I say food forest. Oh God. Matt's dropping F bombs. I think it's time to go to a commercial. Is it We're gonna back. be a Christmas commercial? Do you want to do a Christmas commercial? We could do a Christmas commercial. We gotta we record. We gotta record and write a Christmas commercial. Matthew. Uh, give, give your loved ones the present everyone wants in their sack. Pecans from Norm's Nuts. <laughs> Dom, just cut that out and that is the commercial. If you can throw some like jingle bells behind it, that's it. Just Matt kind <laughs> of mumbling through that. Yeah. <laughs> that is it. We're done. Good job, Matt. We're back, We're everyone, and we hope you enjoyed that great commercial. Don't know where you've heard that voice before. Can we get a voice distortion on that or is that... Just going to stay as is. Oh, that is that is as is. We're talking about pecans. Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the quasi-domesticated cousin of the hickory. Now, unlike the hickory, and the reason why you've eaten pecan and maybe not hickory, is that the pecan can much more easily be broken out of its shell and consumed whole. Not only is this important to us as consumers from a long chain of production, it also allowed indigenous people to utilize these nuts historically in a variety of ways, from eating just whole nuts like we often do when we're having a snack of pecans, to uh, grinding them up for flowers and gruel and paukahikora, which I know I probably pronounced wrong, which is a fermented alcohol drink. So the pecans were bred by indigenous people for easier shelling, but they didn't do the same with the hickories? Well, the thing is that evidence actually doesn't point to humans as being the ones who selectively bred pecans for easier shelling. Aliens did it. No. Better. Bears did it. Closer. Extraterrestrial alien bears. Not fucking aliens. Wouldn't make that mistake twice. So researchers have actually suggested that squirrels and crows had begun the, the work of selecting thinner shells before humans had even discovered the tree. And they're actually a, a large part of why the tree was essentially made a central part of indigenous diets, even beyond the tree's range, through things like trade. And it was also this mutualist relationship between the squirrels and the crows that also pushed the pecan further north before humans even got there. All right, crows are aliens and or cyborgs because we know birds aren't real. We've covered this. Crows are really cool, though, whether they're real or not. They're too damn smart. We're really going to do this again, Elliot? You know I'll what? Get in, I'll get into it right now. No, no. Why, no. why did they choose the color black? Locking that down. No. Back to pecans. So the first human consumers of the pecan at any scale appear to be around the Mississippian culture, which uh, somehow had a diet that consists over 1,100 species of plants. So that's like a 1,000 more than I probably have in my whole life. Good for them. Despite all these resources that were available, the pecan became a staple food in their diet. Some communities would actually travel up to 100 miles to harvest pecans, depending on which grove produced large mass or were masting that year. These groves could be sustainable without any significant human intervention, despite the present issue of the pecan weevil today. Okay, so let me guess. 
the booming population that was not indigenous to the land, it had no connection to it, screwed something up. You know, it's not a guess if you know the answer. So the forest where pecans exist and existed used to have an extensive population of a bird called the red-headed woodpecker. Now, these red-headed woodpecker thrived in pecan forests up until the mid-20th century and largely subsisted on the pecan weevil alongside a bunch of other insects. They need snags in the forest to live. So as the snags are cleared and suburbanization took hold, basically their home was lost and the weevils just exploded. Damn. Classic, uh, classic us. I mean, it is pretty classic. We talk about that story all the time. But I will say, Weevil Explosion sounds like a great name for suburbanization. The Weevil Explosion. It's like a bad skit from a 1950s TV show where the kid does something stupid, knowing it would have an obvious problem, and then would break the wall with like that stupid face and be like, oh, well. Leave it to be. Oh, well, as, uh, you know, fucking up the earth. Oh, the beef. Did they ever break the fourth wall in Beaver? They weren't doing that yet in TV. I, I don't know. I feel like they. I feel like the kids did. The parents never did. But I always feel like the kids would like turn away from the camera when he was about to get yelled at or something. Turn to huh. the camera. Well, I, don't know. I feel like that's just dramatic direction. Maybe there's there's got to be a real leave it to Beaver head out there that has the answer. And they obviously listen to this podcast too. So you know. <laughs> yeah, that was my old roommate. He loved that shit. That's so, a uh, skinny Venn diagram. He yeah. was strange. <laughs> so the these nuts from the pecan trees weren't just harvested for eating, as I pointed out, but they're also a, a really valuable trading commodity. For example, the Jumano Indians maintained villages in the southwest while also having settlements in the Colorado and Conco Valleys, allowing them to move the pecan nearly a thousand miles for seasonal harvesting, which honestly, like... I get a couple hundred, a thousand miles is like some serious dedication for food. Now, while we don't know when they started doing this, we do know that people at least have been consuming pecans for like 9,000 years. Further, the pecans range does appear to be extended by human management at this time, with pollen abundance across regions as far north as Iowa 10,000 years ago, which is like fucking crazy suggesting that humans have likely been eating pecans even longer than the evidence for like storing and being around human settlements exists. It's quick movement in in comparison to like other species really suggests that like indigenous people had a major role in moving it north. Battle crows. Yeah, back when birds were real. Fast forwarding a bit. Upon the colonists' discovery of the nut, it was often confused with the walnut, described frequently as a less oily, smaller walnut. You know what? They didn't have great gift for description, it seems like. Yeah, no. And there was also, speaking of acorns, sometimes they would call them as like a a walnut that was acorn-like. Like, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) Like, it's one or the other. But like the acorn... And the hickory. Uh, These nuts were also stored in pits for future lighter season yields because, you know, mast years. Pecans, like hickories, have been proven to store for well over a year, allowing pecans to be consumed regardless of mast years. And even though, like, it wasn't necessarily super important because so many communities traveled following these masts of the pecan, right? Historically, pecans were processed similar to other nuts with hammers and rocks to break the nuts apart. 
given the popularity of pecans as a crop before mechanical processing, we actually have extensive data on potential crop processing in terms of like caloric production per hour. Tick tock, it's math o'clock. It's nut math time, kids. Get the rock, it's nut math o'clock. We really need to have like a theme song for this. Gonna start smashing these nuts. Let's go. How many can we get in an hour? Yeah. So uh, now an average sheller in these mechanical processing facilities or non-mechanical processing centers was expected to process about a pound of nut meat per hour. That's when these were being processed for sale. And the technology was basically the same. They were just using like hammers to break them out. Yeah. How long ago was this where we calculated the speed of nut? Uh, Like early 20th century. Imagine like going into the nut hammering factory and walking into a room. It's just like a hundred dudes hammering nuts all day. It's like cartoon shit, basically. I don't even need to describe that visual. Everyone can just use their imaginations. But here, let me give it a go. It's huge acne hammers, right? And the old timey railroad chain gang just hammer away nuts all the live long day. Yeah, that exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, a pound of pecans an hour puts pecans at around 3,136 calories an hour, not Ooh. to be too specific, with about two-thirds of those calories remaining in whole or half nuts, unlike hickories, which if you recall, they just got beat to shit and then you had to make the nut milk, right? Outside of hickories with that nut milk and the largest bur oaks, this is the highest caloric return on any nut. But unlike the hickories, the pecans can be eaten as, well, nuts, and they don't have to, like, drink them, which I think is like a a good consumption choice, right? Historically, there's little evidence that pecans were consumed using nut milk, which is really interesting because flavor-wise, hickories and pecans are very similar. And it suggests that the nut milk of hickories was driven precisely because of those processing challenge. And just to round it out, those were around like 3,900 calories an hour. Yeah, so the biggest ones were around 3,900, which is a bit bigger than the pecans. But the average burrs, which are you know still pretty big acorns by acorn standards, were around 2,200 calories. So uh, a vast improvement compared to the typical burr oaks, because we're comparing typical pecans, right? To remind folks that have not listened to this series through and written down everything they've heard. The, I mean, you guys weren't taking notes. I, I believe there are more than a few listeners that do that, but maybe not anymore with the substack. So the hickories that were processed for nut milk were around 5,200 calories per hour, which just blows everything out of the water. Keep in mind that this measurement, unlike the ones for oaks and hickories, doesn't include harvesting time because we just don't have that information. So it's probably a little bit lower, but the harvesting time isn't the the major factor in slowing things down, right? So it's still probably right within the range between hickories and acorns while having a whole nut to eat and also just like not having to do like any cooking or boiling. Okay, so for the layman to understand, i.e. me, we're talking like an eight-hour day of processing pecans feeds around about 10 people. Yeah, basically. So if you process pecans for a month, you'd have enough food for close to a year. I mean, it's 100% living on all pecans right now. Hey, look, life insurance people, no nut allergies here, so don't be <laughs> jealous because I could. <laughs> he's, he's just bulking up for his life insurance uh, medical exam. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to watch Elliot pound some pecans and do some push-ups. And uh, I'm still working on my the, nut protein powder. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then we're going to get into the modern evolution of the pecan industry. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. The pecan story in the modern era begins with the French botanist André Michaud, who saw how wild pecan stands were managed by the indigenous near Kaskaskia, Illinois in 1819. Based on what he saw in the, the seedlings that he'd seen being planted from trees, it became very obvious that like the seedlings didn't share many of the traits of their parents. So that for like pecans to be successful, to become a crop, they really needed to be grafted to consistently produce quality pecans. And he had attempted to graft pecans to black walnuts, and he obviously had no success. So if you think that they're all basically walnuts, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, C for effort. <laughs> <laughs> now, only a few years later, um, another fellow named Dr. Abner Landrum was able to successfully graft pecan buds to young hickory trees in Edgefield, South Carolina in 1822. Now, while they were a success, there was very little interest in his work, and the event was very quickly forgotten. Part of this erasure was because he was involved in like a bunch of different stuff. He was kind of like a an odd Renaissance man, and he kind of dedicated most of his life to pottery. And like his pecan stuff was just like this weird curiosity, and he never really did much to like advertise that he hacked this thing that nobody could figure out. He was actually wildly successful in the field of pottery and even helped the man that he had enslaved take over the pottery business after his death. I mean, you said it, a true Renaissance man, uh, pottery and pecans. The two they must peas. must have been lining up. Yeah. The, the two big things. The two big peas. And there's a lot more to unpack about him, but obviously this episode isn't about him, so we're not going to dive into it. Now, it wasn't for a few more decades that in New Orleans, the pecan became more than just a curiosity and passive income producer. Because what had been happening across most of the South was that the riparian zones around the rivers would flood out and kill all of the cotton. So farmers stopped planting cotton near the rivers and the pecans took over. It became very obvious after a while that the pecans produced food. And even if humans didn't want to eat it, they could feed it to their pigs. And that became a, a very common thing in the South during the 19th century was to just let your pigs in and eat all the pecans off the ground. That sounds like it could be pretty good. Pecan finished pork. I mean, yeah, maple. Imagine like maple glazed pecan pork. I might actually be able to make that happen. Should we? Should I try some cuisine content? Yes, could be fun. I feel like I feel like Master Shake from Aqua Teen when he force feeds, <laughs> force feeds the cow. <laughs> oh yes. God! And then deep fries it. 
Yeah. <laughs> this thing can flash fry a buffalo in four seconds. Well, you know, I could probably get you a pig, so. I know a guy. You, you got the pecan. I got a feeded pecan so I could be pecan finished pork. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um, we digress. We digress. So at this point, pecans were known across the country, even if they weren't a major food source. Part of the challenge of the pecan was that its seeds produced wildly variable trees, as we discussed. And even though it was becoming more popular, still nobody had really figured out grafting that was known. Fortunately, uh, a local pecan enthusiast, a man named Dr. A.E. Colm, tried to prove that grafting pecans was possible. Now, he failed repeatedly, and then he decided to ask his friend, a guy who went by Telesphore, J. Roman, but his name was actually Jacques Telesphore Roman, and he thought he could help him figure out this pecan issue. Okay, I'm mad this guy didn't invent the Wi-Fi tree because Telesphore sounds like Wi-Fi that works through fungi. I mean, it is really quite the name. Why fungi? Yeah. We could have had it. We don't. Um, i just be glad you're out of arm's reach. Oh, yeah. Anyways, this 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 fellow named Telesphore, he didn't really know anything about grafting, but he did know a guy. That guy was somebody that he had enslaved, and his name was Antoine, and he worked at Oak Alley Plantation in St. James Parish, Louisiana. He ended up going on to graft 16 pecan trees at this guy, Dr. Colm's request. Now, this happened in 1846 or 47. We don't actually fully know. And a few years later, Antoine actually grafted another 110 trees. This plantation would basically be the basis for the future of the entire pecan industry. How old? I mean, like, are these trees still around? Do they live that long? So they can live that long, which is so it's a very valid question. And I'm going to answer it a little bit in a moment, and then I'll probably forget to finish answering it. So the, the short short answer is no. I'm going to guess not. Yeah, was the short answer is no. Pre-Civil War. But there's some, there's some interesting stuff here that happens. So this guy, Roman, Telespore Roman, dies a few years later, and the plantation is basically thrown into disarray. I mean, you're on the brink of the Civil War. It was put up for auction. It was repeatedly bought by people who didn't know what they had cleared most of the land, failed to profit by planting sugar, which they thought was this cash crop, went back into closure and back up for auction, so on and so forth. A few decades later, a man named Hubert Bonzano claims to be German. I'm pretty sure he's Italian. (laughs) What tipped you off? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Discovered there are these unique trees that have been grafted. And he slowly learns the story about Antoine. And he goes to this thing called the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia on the 100th anniversary of the nation, so 1876. And uh, at this event, he shares some of these pecans. It was here that people were like, oh, shit, like, this is a, this is a great pecan. And they named that, that becomes the first cultivar of the pecan. It's called the Centennial Pecan because of this event. And it was because of this grafting that the domesticated crop really took off. Unsurprisingly, Antoine at this point was dead. His son, who had been living there, had left the year before Bonzano had brought to light that these unique pecans were here. In some weird coincidence, Hubert talked to Roman's son, the guy who had originally owned it, and his name was Henry. He actually confirmed that like this grafter was this enslaved guy named Antoine. And like put that on the record so that, you know, otherwise that story 
likely would have been lost if it weren't for people being honest about the fact that, like, yes, it wasn't a white guy who did this. What a wild ride. I mean, I'm, yeah, shocked that that story wasn't buried. Yeah, we all know for every story that isn't buried, at least 100 were. But at least we don't have to hear about, like, I don't know, culinary history class that (laughs) Schubert Benzano invented the pecan. Or Telespore. Can't forget about our spore guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're more interested in the story, because there's a lot to it, Antoine's father, Zephyr, very talented. His son fought in the Civil War. There's a very interesting story here that's worth unpacking, something we don't have really time to do, but check it out. There's a book called Antoine of Ogali, The Unlikely Origin of Southern Pecans and the Enslaved Man Who Cultivated Them. And that'll give you a little bit of that story and how that research is done to track those stories, because I'm sure many people would like to know of more of those that exist out there and how to even start to look for them, right? Yeah, it sounds like a good resource. I'll probably crack that open and read it, but I'll also hold my breath for the Netflix adaptation because it shows shows you how far people have come also because Antoine didn't even have a last name. He's just Antoine of Oak Alley. And then you got other dudes with two initials and like doctor in front of their name and they sound all important, but really everybody's just on the same page. Yeah. Just sometimes one of them is writing it. The other one isn't, is the page. Damn, that's deep. (laughs) Sorry. So over the 50 years or so following this, the regions of Texas and Louisiana become like home of this newly forming pecan industry. Right. And even though we have this grafted cultivar, which is the reason why this industry is taking off, many farmers refuse to actually use it and still are trying to grow from seedlings. Because of the way the diversity of the pecan exists, those seedlings rarely show the traits of their parents. You'd have to plant 50,000 seeds to get one that might be an improved variety. Many of these people were very hesitant to trust grafting, and that slowed the industry's growth, even though they could do 50,000 seedlings pick a branch off of each one, cut them, and graft it to a tree to see if it, so you don't have to wait the full life of the tree. But they didn't, they didn't trust it, so they just didn't use it. And they kept that industry from growing very slowly, even though grafting was common in other, like, apples. Like, apple trees, grafting was very common at this point. I mean, farmers refusing to accept new techniques, I just, I don't believe it. It's, I know, right? Yeah. That's Never. unbelievable. No, not not in my America. Despite this, the pecan eventually did become to get inundated with improved pecans. Oh, I actually, before we get to there, I want to, I, I said I was going to forget, but I just remembered to finish that story about the trees. So the centennial, all those trees did, they were, as of 1920, there were still three standing, but they're no longer standing anymore. However, someone saved uh, germplasm, some scions with the the government and they've actually been regrafted onto new trees and as of a couple of years ago somebody had replanted grafted centennial trees near where the original ones were Ooh. which is pretty fucking dope antoine lives cool. hell yeah i didn't want to forget that i was like i this is not the spot for it but i'm going to remember it so i don't forget it because if i wait till the end it's not going to be in my brain anymore hell yeah Nicely done. So as I was saying, though, so we had this growth in improved pecans very slowly, 
one stat that I saw was that the Southeast had increased orchard peak entries from 567,000 to 8.83 million in 25 years. Jesus. That, that's quite a few more trees, right? Now, there's two reasons for that. The first one is the obvious one, which is old farmers starts to die and you f- new farmers that grew up knowing these technologies were more accepting of them. Now, looking at you, boomers, the second one is that advocates for using these these grafted trees did a really good job of trying to propose and raise the voices of testimonies of farmers that were doing grafting. And in that process, a lot of times they were highlighting the farmer's ingenuity and their self-determination, like just kind of like stroking the ego of like, you're not beholden to someone else right you can do this all yourself you're you're a big brave farmer you can you can keep your independence kind of thing and the goal is just to really highlight to people that were just everyday farmers who didn't have a lot of education that they could do it and they could be in control of their own destiny if they were willing to so when other farmers do it and they're successful suddenly it's a cool thing to do peeing your pants is cool Consider me Miles Davis. That is gross. What is that from? Oh my God, Matt! How many times are we going to age ourselves? Too young. Today? Too young. He's too young. He's not even twenty-three yet. Yeah, Billy Madison. That is your homework. Go watch Billy Madison. Okay. I feel like somebody in that movie has been canceled. So I mean, oh, probably. No, this is an official endorsement. Yes, everything sure. that is said in that movie, we fully support with uncritically. Uh, definitely everything the bus driver says, yeah. Chris Farley, yeah. Yeah. Part of the success with the farmers was that the USDA had also recently had some successes dealing with insect pressure, and that built a lot of goodwill with farmers and gave them the ability to um, feel like they could trust the USDA. Between these two changes, the pecan crop was able to really start to thrive. Additionally, and this is something we're going to talk about more in like eight episodes or so, the FDR administration in the 30s took hold and advocated for perennial crops extensively. And there were a couple of different programs that were aimed just specifically at the pecans themselves, one of which was the Pecan Stabilization Association. And basically what the point of this project was to establish a permanent foreign market, to basically internationalize the American nut, the pecan. The government also stepped in and set price ceilings on pecans so that basically they couldn't sell for above a certain price so that people would want to buy them. And it would also create this domesticated domestic food that was a perennial crop. And they also subsidized farmers for the difference between what that ceiling was and what they thought the price should be. So it made pecans affordable while also helping farmers stay profitable. Thank you, taxpayers. Yeah, FDR was nuts for nuts and uh, fucking with the free market. <laughs> what was Norman FDR's administration? Preparing the grassy norm, obviously. Oh, come on. So dozens of cultivars rolled out from farmers, and it quickly became overwhelming for new farmers. These pecan groups that started springing up as it became a more popular crop began to set standards for what could qualify as a cultivar, attempting to reduce the amount of just, you know, unimproved but named cultivars that were out there, a majority of which were considered to be mediocre. And uh, I went through some of the, the lists of some of the names just out of curiosity to see what was out there, what was like an old variety cultivar that we still see today. And man, 
there were some some of these cultures were like I'll say a sign of the times. There was one called the N-word, wasn't it? How did you know? I mean, literally every time someone says something like sign of the times, it means there's a white dude dropping hard R's or saying something else equally offensive, and everybody's just like cool with it. Hard R's. Ugh, norm kind of R's. The norms. Hard R. <laughs> hard R. So, uh, wild times, 1930s, wild times. The U.S. government tried to hype up the pecan, not just by, like, subsidizing the industry, but they also worked with, like, famous cooks and other, like, generally public figures to find new ways to use and advertise the pecan. So, like, kind of how we saw corn got shoved in everything. The same thing, but it wasn't being done, like, behind closed doors. It was being done, like, very publicly. So, like, the pecan obviously isn't as easily absorbed into other foods. It doesn't just have this sugar that you can stuff into stuff but um pecans have kind of found a unique home in like a lot of desserts in cookbooks right so today the pecan is the most widely consumed north american nut and it's primarily consumed through desserts here in the united states the pralines that you might get in the southeast like i had in georgia a few weeks back you can get pecan pie you can get pecan ice cream there's a ton of different stuff that you can get it in today now, one of the challenges of the pecan today is that it has this the monocrop issues, right? It has these pest issues. And to this day, these issues really haven't been addressed. However, what makes this crop interesting to me and what I, my big takeaway is that it's a profitable native tree crop that people have incorporated into their daily diets or everyday diets. Like, I don't know about daily, but like it, it's consumed enough. Like it gives us an idea of what a food system can look like that is based in native tree crops. Yeah, you don't have to go to a specialty store to find it. You can find them anywhere. Mm-hmm. Would be nice. I just remember driving through the rural south, going to visit my grandma, and I saw how they harvest pecans. And they have like this giant machine. It reminded me of the the beauty belt massager, the old the machine. Yeah. yeah. And they just wrap a strap around the tree and just shake the shit out of it. And mm-hmm. then there's another machine that comes and just scoops them up. It's like an anteater that comes through. It reminded me of the the thing at like the driving range where they have the car oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. attached to it and they just drive over everything. It was like I, that. And it was just super fascinating because I was like those, I've seen those machines before used by people for like different things, but that's how they just harvest rows and rows of pecans. It was cool. Hmm. Matt's just, hmm, yeah, yes. No, I'm sorry. No, all I know about that's all I know about pecans. I I have exhausted my knowledge. That's why Andy writes these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I I enjoy. I've become slightly pecan pilled by this content, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. Next week we have a great interview. Y'all are gonna be real excited about it. If you want to listen to it, you can go hop on our Patreon right now. Two bucks a month. Go tune in. Oh, and if you like this, you can also read it with all the sources on our Substack. I got ourselves a handy-dandy link for it to make it a whole lot easier for people. You can go to agroecologies.org, which somehow is not taken. You just have to click on it and then uh, read. I'm sure everybody can do that. Tall orders from Elliot. You can skip all our bullshit and get to the goods. Yeah. Yeah. So if you enjoyed this, thank you. Uh, If you didn't, fuck you. 
Kidding. Yeah. Kidding. And li- listen to the ne- subscribe and listen to the next one. Maybe it'll be better. <laughs> um, thank you guys that support us. This is always a blast to do, and we're glad you're enjoying it. And uh, we'll see you next week. Hey there. We love it. We love you. Bye. Yeah! <laughs>